KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. La Mesa police released video of protester Leslie Furcron shot with a beanbag. That guy. That was a guy in Starlet I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A report on the San Diego Police Department's use of overtime pay. What we think is more true is that this is an intentional decision not to be upfront about the cost that we're putting into policing. The Chicano Federation challenges the county's COVID outreach efforts, and cancel culture pops up in a debate over professor emeritus status at SDSU. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The La Mesa Police Department has released a video montage of the events surrounding the beanbag shooting of African-American protester Leslie Furcron. The incident happened during the May 30th demonstration outside La Mesa Police Headquarters, one of many protests in response to the police killing of George Floyd. 59-year-old Leslie Furcron was shot in the forehead with a beanbag by police. She was badly injured and continues to suffer a loss of vision in one eye, according to her attorney. The video of the shooting, taken from police body cam, was shot at night, and it's not completely clear. But La Mesa police say it shows Furcron throwing something in the direction of sheriff's deputies before she was shot by a La Mesa police detective. Joining me is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. And Max, welcome. Hi. We now know the name of the police detective who shot Furcron. Who is he, and what have La Mesa police disclosed about him? Yeah, in a release uh, late yesterday, they identified him as Detective Eric Knudsen, a 12-year veteran of the police department. They say since the incident, since the protest, he's been on administrative leave as uh, the investigation into possible criminality of, of his actions is being undertaken by both the department and the district attorney. The shooting incident is captured from Knudsen's vantage point. He was quite a distance away from Leslie Furcron when the shot was fired, wasn't he? Right. The detective was around 96 feet away, according to the video released by the La Mesa Police Department. He was, um, you know, behind a a small barrier on on a little ledge right next to the police department. 
Um, in fact, he was he was so far away at the moment, uh, right after he shot, he said that, you know, he had sh been shooting at a man. So he couldn't get a clear view of, of the Leslie Furcron, who is uh, in her late 50s and, uh, you know, obviously a woman and a, a grandmother at that. Here's audio from the police video as the shot was fired. That guy. That was the guy in Starlet now, obviously, as you said, the police detective thought that Leslie Furcron was a man when he fired that shot. So is the police officer, therefore, the police detective, anywhere near the direction that Furcron was allegedly throwing the object? No, the object was not being thrown at this specific detective. At the parking lot at that time, sheriff's deputies had cleared out the parking lot after several rounds of tear gas, as well as La Mesa Police Department uh, officers and sheriff's deputies firing these beanbag rounds from the top and side of the police department. So the parking lot was fairly clear. And what she uh, was throwing an object towards were the sheriff's deputies who were in the parking lot um, overhead video and, and and my vantage point at the time, because I was there, um, the, the object that she threw got nowhere close to where the deputies were. And in fact, you know, from what you hear the officer saying after he shot, it's unclear whether he was saying that this was a person who was throwing moments before or had been throwing objects throughout the day. And we do actually see on the video some objects coming towards the direction of the police detective who shot the beanbag, some objects coming to that balcony from protesters toward police. Isn't that right? Yeah, earlier in the day, um, you know, obviously the video released here is showing the police perspective. It's what the uh, law enforcement would like the public to see about the incident. Obviously, a lot more is going to be handed over to the district attorney, as well as Ms. Furcron's lawyers. Um, you know, they're showing these eight officers um, getting pelted by rocks. There are several large rocks that are thrown that were taken from landscape around the uh, police department. Um, so it's showing that from their vantage point, there were several projectiles coming at them. Um, what it's not showing is the perspective of the protesters who at the same time were dealing with uh, tear gas, bean bags, um, things like that. And, and not only protesters, but people who had kind of just come to see what was watching because I was often across the street and still having to dodge bean bags and tear gas as well. Remind us about the injury that Leslie Furcron suffered. So the shooting left Furcron with um, multiple fractures to her skull and um, at least um, as of June 23rd, had blinded her on her left eye. Um, it was unclear if she will regain use of that eye, um, and there haven't been any updates in her condition since then. She's filed a claim against the city of La Mesa accusing police of excessive force. What has her attorney said about the release of this police body cam footage? I've, I've reached out to the uh, lawyer, Dante Prada. I've yet to hear back, but he did tell the Union Tribune last night uh, after the body camera footage was released that it was showing a can thrown by, you know, a grandmother, not something that would have been uh, retaliated against by a beanbag, you know, to to her face. Now, most of the video released by La Mesa police contains images of the whole day of demonstrations, and the shooting only makes up about two minutes of the seven-minute video. Have police given any reason for that? 
They haven't. I mean, it's tough when you have instances, incidents like this that stretch out for an entire day to give the entire context in kind of a fairly condensed video. We've seen in other use of force incidents that have been released lately, we get the body camera footage from before, during and after the incident. Here, it's only a small slice. But what they're trying to do is put put it in the context of kind of the the heightened tension around the police station that day. Again, as I said, you know, that's only one perspective. It's the police officer's perspective and it's law enforcement's perspective. And they're totally entitled on their YouTube channel to put that out there and, and try to kind of push exactly what they were up against on that day. But a lot more is going to come out about this case and about exactly what happened at La Mesa on, on that day as the district attorney and plaintiff's lawyers and civil rights advocates who've announced several lawsuits stemming from the protest in early June um, get much, much more discovery from what happened. Because as you saw, there was a ton of video taken from social media, body camera footage, surveillance, helicopter. These are things that are all going to be disclosed in a matter of time. And what is the La Mesa police response to the shooting of Leslie Furcron? So from day one, they've been deeply apologetic about, um, you know, that the fact that she was injured during this incident. Um, they haven't at any point kind of claimed liability because obviously this is now a legal matter. They've said they're praying for her recovery. And here's what uh, Chief Walt Vasquez said in a release last night that accompanied the body camera footage. It is my hope that we will continue to heal the wounds, nurture an environment of open communication, and make La Mesa a safer place to live. So they want to move forward after this incident and try to, uh, as he says, heal the wounds, because this was a protest that eventually turned into a night of destruction of local businesses. And, um, you know, a lot of people there are hoping that it sparks larger conversations about relationships between local law enforcement and uh, citizens in La Mesa and how the situation was able to get to a point uh, where, you know, we saw somebody have permanent damage from a shot, one single shot, you know, from a police officer during an entire day of, of heretofore peaceful protests. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. And Max, thank you. Thank you. In addition to the demonstrations in La Mesa, protests over the killing of George Floyd brought thousands of protesters into downtown San Diego. And San Diego police were deployed at full force at the site of those protests. In the aftermath of the rallies and demonstrations, activists have been calling on city leaders to cut the police budget and give more money to libraries, parks, and affordable housing. But as KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen explains, even when its budgets are lean, SDPD has a track record of overspending. George Floyd! George Floyd! On May 31st, thousands of San Diegans gathered in downtown San Diego to protest the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. 
That afternoon and evening, police declared an unlawful assembly and used tear gas, stun grenades, and pepper balls to disperse the crowds. Protesters said that escalated an otherwise peaceful demonstration, while police say it was necessary to secure the area. Either way, it was an expensive day for city taxpayers. In the following days and weeks, police racked up more than 100,000 hours of overtime, responding to protests. By mid-June, SDPD had blown past its overtime budget by more more than $11 million, and the overspending is not a fluke. A KPBS review of city budgets and financial reports found SDPD has spent beyond its overtime budget in all of the past 10 fiscal years. Together, the decade of overspending totals more than $61 million. Our office has raised concerns with police overtime exceeding budgeted levels quite consistently. Baku Patel is a fiscal and policy analyst with the Independent Budget Analyst's Office. All departments have a responsibility to spend within their budget. Um, including the police department. Police department is a little unique because especially the use of overtime uh, if there's an emergency or a public safety issue that needs to be addressed, typically that's done through overtime. Some overtime pay is also mandatory. Officers are guaranteed overtime when they work on holidays, for example, or have to appear in court. But the biggest portion of the police overtime budget is discretionary, when police captains allow officers to work beyond their regular eight hours. We have to be honest about where the desire for policing comes from. Kira Green is executive director of the progressive think tank Center on Policy Initiatives. Police have justified extending shifts into overtime by saying the department is understaffed. Green disagrees and says the use of overtime reflects the over-policing of some San Diego neighborhoods. It's always the case that policing is racialized. Um, and so as this city has become more people of color, we've, now, we've heard a call for more policing. That's not going to solve our problems. It actually is our problem. Green says SDPD's consistent overspending on overtime could mean one of two things. Either all the mayors and police chiefs over the past decade have been really bad at predicting how much the department would need to spend on overtime, or... What we think is more true is that this is an intentional decision not to be upfront about the cost that we're putting into policing and to do at the front end of the budget cuts in all kinds of programs under the argument that there's not enough money and then on the back end of the budget to put that money back into policing. SDPD declined our request for an interview and refused to respond to written questions about overtime spending. Council President Georgette Gomez says the police budget does need more scrutiny. To that end, she and Councilmember Monica Montgomery commissioned a deep-dive report into police spending so the council can find areas to cut responsibly. So when we are having the budget discussion and the budget allocations, we can actually make decisions based on that information versus when we're in, in official budget hearings, it makes it hard because a lot of the information is coming at us very, very quickly, but also at times very late. Despite a flood of calls to cut the police budget, council members last month approved Mayor Kevin Faulkner's proposal to increase it by about 5 percent to $566 million. The police overtime budget also went up to about $34 million. But in an effort to crack down on overspending, the council is also requiring SDPD 
to provide a detailed account of overtime use as soon as half of the budget is exhausted. Councilmember Chris Ward, who cast the only vote against the budget, says this is the level of oversight needed right now. And I think that what you're hearing from many council representatives is an increased interest in engaging directly um, with police operations and with, with the police budget itself um, to be a little more transparent and clear about what it is we're doing, how we're spending it, and what other alternatives might be out there for consideration. The deep dive report on SDPD's budget is expected sometime in the late summer or fall. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Now, it was just a few years ago that the big issue with police in San Diego was that there weren't enough of them and that the city wasn't paying enough to recruit or retain enough police officers. How has that situation changed? Well, in 2017, Mayor Kevin Faulkner struck a deal with the Police Officers Association to give them a series of raises. And uh, it's true that SDPD offered relatively low pay compared to other uh, comparative agencies uh, like the Sheriff's Department or police departments in the neighboring cities. And so those raises really um, brought SDPD up to par with some of those other agencies. They were they were approved also unanimously by the city council. So that certainly <laughs> reflects how times have changed. Um, but since then, the police have been steadily building up their staffing levels, filling some of those um, vacant positions with uh, new recruits. They're not where they want to be right now, but they have definitely made a lot of progress. And one thing that I learned in reporting this story is that the council hasn't really had a, an in-depth conversation about the number of officers that the department needs. The goal has always been to get to the staffing levels seen before the Great Recession, um, but now we're seeing more interest from the council and taking a closer look at those numbers, and perhaps maybe they'll decide that we can do okay with the number of officers that we have right now. Now, over the 10 years that you looked at, wasn't overtime pay sometimes used to boost an officer's overall compensation? I can't say whether that was the intent of uh, overtime. Um, it is true that uh, in 2012, Proposition B froze the pay of um, virtually all city employees. Um, but any overtime hours that the off police officers earned during that period certainly helped their pay. Uh, and browsing through some of the salary data that we found, uh, some officers earned $0 in overtime. Others might have had half of their earnings at the end of the year uh, from overtime. So it definitely provided a big pay boost to uh, certain people. Do we know how most of the police overtime pay is spent? It's not easy information to find. Uh, I can say that the Independent Budget Analyst Office was a big help. As um, I mentioned in their story, police chose not to give us an interview or answer any of our questions in writing. But we did get a memo that was released in response to some council member questions. And about a third of the uh, overtime budget was listed as extension of shift. That's when officers are working past their eight hours just to keep more uh, police officers on the beat, walking the streets, et cetera. And that's the biggest portion. About a tenth of the overtime budget was listed as going to holiday pay. Uh, and about a quarter was categorized as other. And with some more digging, we found out this is actually related to a lot of the policing of homelessness. So officers 
For example, accompany civilian city staffers while they clear homeless encampments in case there's some sort of confrontation. And also neighborhood policing is a new division that was created by the department in 2018 to centralize a lot of the quality of life complaints that they respond to, many of which are related to homelessness. So this is absolutely the the overtime budget growing is absolutely connected to um, the city's use of the police department to respond to homelessness. Now, Kira Green of the Center for Policy Initiatives told you communities of color are not asking for more police to make them feel safer. But former District Attorney Paul Finks told us on this show last week that when he had town hall meetings, he was always asked by the community for more police in the neighborhood. That was in the early 2000s. So is it fair to say attitudes have shifted and are shifting? It's a hard question to answer. I think it's fair to say communities are pretty divided on whether police presence makes their community safer. Uh, Council President Georgette Gomez told me in our interview that after a recent shooting in her district, she also got a flood of emails and calls for more police presence. Um, But it's also true that many in San Diego simply don't trust the police and see them as more of a threat to their safety. So are attitudes changing? I think it's hard to say, but definitely based on the size and the frequency of the protests that we saw against police violence in recent months, I think more people, and in particular more white people, are viewing the police with a lot more skepticism than they did before. Considering the moment that we're in, why did the San Diego City Council vote to raise the police budget? Well, the main reason, and it is true, uh, was that the city had promised salary and benefit increases for the police, uh, and those personnel costs are pretty baked into the budget. Um, The mayor and city council could have chosen to reduce the budgeted positions in the police department. Uh, There was a hiring freeze in most city departments after COVID-19 hit the budget really hard, and there were even a few layoffs. Um, But uh, the police were mostly spared from that. It's also true that these calls to defund the police were not a major part of the discourse in San Diego before George Floyd's death. The police department had a budget review committee hearing on May 4th when they presented their budget in greater detail, and that was three weeks before George Floyd's uh, killing by a police officer. And so, uh, you know, if there had been 10 hours of public testimony in that hearing, or if this whole conversation had started earlier, then there might have been a different outcome. But it was fairly hard to change um, on the day uh, that the city council was approving the police budget. And is the police department unique among city agencies in blowing past its overtime budget? It's not. Uh, The fire department is the other main uh, sort of culprit in this, um, spending beyond its overtime budget. And that's also been called out as an issue in the IBA reports uh, over the years. Uh, One thing that we did learn was that the fire department, uh, at least in the most recent fiscal year, did have higher vacancy savings. Um, And this is when, you know, you budget for a position that ultimately you can't fill. So that's money that set aside that was unspent and often that offsets overtime spending. Those vacancy savings were higher in the fire department than they were in the police department. So kind of the overall budget balance um, is greater in the, or at least most recently was greater in the police department in terms of actually overspending overall. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter, Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Tune in tomorrow for a closer look at calls to shift money from policing to mental health services.
As the COVID-19 pandemic progresses, it's becoming clear that in San Diego, the Latino community is being hit harder than other parts of the population. While Latinos make up 34% of the region's population, they make up 60% of infections and 45% of the deaths. This week, county health officials announced they're stepping up outreach and testing in the Latino community. But at least one local community group is disappointed with the county's response and is urging officials to do more. Yesterday on Midday Edition, we talked with the county's health department about its latest outreach efforts in the Latino community. Today, we have with us Nancy Maldonado, who is CEO of the Chicano Federation. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. So now, what would you say are the reasons why the Latino community is being hit so much harder by the virus than other communities? Well, I think it's it's a combination of reasons. Um, but I think ultimately what we're seeing is that COVID-19 is exacerbating the structural inequities that already existed. And what we're seeing is the devastating consequences of years of failure to address those inequities. You know, our our community doesn't have the same access to healthcare, access to affordable housing. You know, the community, our community lives disproportionately in poverty. And you know, there's there's lots of research to suggest the the health consequences of living in poverty. The list goes on, really. So now, yesterday we heard from the county that they are about to launch a increased outreach to the Latino community, and they're increasing the number of testing sites, and they're adding contract tracers and uh, contact tracers in underserved areas. Does does that response satisfy you? I think it's a step in the right direction, but you know, as, as you know, as we all know, this is this is a very layered situation, and it's not enough to just put testing sites. It's not enough to just increase contact tracing. We also have to talk to the community and understand what some of these barriers and concerns around being tested or co- getting contacted by a contact tracer might be, and so we have to you know, whenever we go into these situations, they have to be informed by communities so that we can address them in a way that's culturally relevant and is really addressing the needs of the community. So part of what we've done here on our own at Chicano Federation is to partner with UC San Diego to do studies to find out what the barriers are, what the misconceptions are, so that we can inform our community and we can address these Uh, you know, whatever these ideas or thoughts are so that people will participate in testing and in contact tracing. And I think that's the piece that's been missing and, and quite honestly should have been addressed months ago. So, for example, it's all very well to um, outreach and suggest people need more testing. But if, in fact, they test positive and, and uh, need to stop work, uh, they may not want to know if they're positive because if they stop work, their family would suffer, Right. I mean, what, what do you think is missing from this approach? Some support systems in place for if you are the sole income earner in your family and you test positive, there needs to be some support system for that family, right? So if, if that person does have to stop, stop working, you know, will there be some financial assistance to help during that time? In addition to that, if this person doesn't have the ability to self-isolate at home, you know, is there a program, a hotel room set up so that this person can go so that they're not exposing their family? Like I said, you know, I recognize that there there are a lot of layers to this, but, you know, we, we have been asking for a comprehensive approach and a comprehensive plan because one, one approach is not, is not the solution. And so we do need to look at this holistically and, 
and address the whole family and address the whole picture, not just one aspect of it. Now, in response to the criticism from the Chicano Federation, uh, Barbara Jimenez, who was with us yesterday, uh, had this to say on the show. We need everyone's support. We look forward to working with organizations. Um, we encourage any organization that feels like there's specific gaps um, to really help us in getting those messages out. Um, and again, we cannot do it alone. And we really, really um, appreciate and, and, and like the opportunity to continue to work with all um, those trusted messengers and those organizations that have been doing tremendous work in the community. That was Barbara Jimenez from San Diego County Health Department. Uh, So what would you respond to that when she says the county cannot do it alone? I mean, what makes the county such an important part of the response in your view? Yeah, and I agree wholeheartedly with that. The county can't do it alone, and and I understand that. But the county does is kind of the glue that holds this all together. And they have the ability to help us as community-based organizations really get this message out to to our families. And so we have been in touch with the county and they have been receptive to our feedback and hopefully moving forward, we will take that approach because we have suggested that in order to really reach communities, it has to be done through a trusted messenger. And for San Diego, that trusted messenger is community-based organizations. And it's not just Chicano Federation. We have some amazing nonprofit nonprofits in San Diego who, who can help in this effort as well. So I'm in 100% in agreement that this doesn't fall on the county, you know, just by by themselves, and that there are a lot of community-based organizations that want to help and that, you know, will help if we can all come together and do this together. I know the Chicano Federation is working with the Housing Commission to distribute uh, rental relief, although whether there'll be enough money in there to meet the need, I guess, is anyone's guess. And you're also planning to lobby for more money for childcare. Do you think that the coordination between the various agencies in San Diego to support people is enough at this point? You know, with the rent relief alone, this program just launched a few days ago, and um, our staff has been really overwhelmed and quite honestly saddened to hear the need and the stories that come from our community. And a lot of them were not able to help through this program, right? Because there are limitations. Um, And it's been, it's, it's taken an emotional toll on our staff to have to turn away so many people. The needs are so widespread that, you know, there has to be, we all have to come together and we all have a responsibility to, to step up and to help our community. The, the more we coordinate, the more we work together, the more of an impact we will have. What would you like to see happen next? Well, you know, I think first and foremost, there is an urgent need to, to, get education out to our communities. I would love to collaborate with the county with with some of our other nonprofit partners who are doing amazing work to make sure that first and foremost, we stop this spread. But then second, I think we also really need to dig deep into the data to look at where these inequities lie. And one of the things that we're seeing is that someone's income determines their chances of getting this virus and the zip code that they live in determines the chances of contracting this deadly virus. And that is something that we cannot allow to continue. I think we need to stay focused on addressing the the systemic inequities and make sure that we, we really see the desperately needed change that we need to see in this county. We've been speaking with Nancy Maldonado, who is CEO of the Chicano Federation. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
A well-known San Diego businesswoman pleaded guilty yesterday in connection with a $400 million Ponzi scheme. Hundreds of investors were ensnared in the conspiracy over the last several years, according to the plea agreement revealed in federal court. Union Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg spoke with KPBS host Mark Sauer earlier today about the scandal. Here's that interview. Lori, this is a complicated story that's ongoing. Give us a thumbnail. Who is Gina Champion-Kane and what's the scheme she's pleading to? Well, I think most people who um, go out to eat would know Jamie Champion Kane as um, a high-profile restaurateur, and probably they're most familiar with her for her um, patio restaurant chains. But most of those restaurants are gone now in the wake of this scandal. So, any she was thought of as a respected businesswoman, but that all that all fell apart when um, she became under she came under investigation by both the SEC and then later by the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, what she did was uh, she came up with a scheme that had nothing to do with her restaurants, um, where it was a liquor license lending scheme that pe- pe- people, the restaurateurs or bar owners that needed to get liquor licenses need to put up money to do that. So she came up with a scheme where she solicited investors to invest money for high interest loans, and she would pay them the high interest, and then they would loan this money to the people via Gina Champion Kane and her companies to these uh, bar and restaurant owners. And then they, once, they, once the liquor licenses were secured, the money would be returned. The problem was it was all a, was all a scam. She, there were no liquor license loans. There were no liquor licenses that she was purchasing. Instead, she diverted um, hundreds of millions of dollars to her and her companies and we later found out through the U.S. Attorney's Office yesterday that they were being used to prop up her businesses, pay off credit card debt, uh, box seats at Charger and Padres games, jewelry from Tiffany's, homes, um, expensive cars. So really spending a lot of money on herself and not uh, involved with uh, making the investors whole at all, right? Right, right. And and to give it a sense of credibility um, early on, she would... Um, she would pay back investors and you know give them back if they wanted their principal or she'd give them their interest payments. So about 200 million of the 400 million that went in and out went back to give them the sense of, oh, this, this really is decent. I'm getting my money back. I'll just roll over my money and put more money in. So that's how she kept it going. But in a classic Ponzi scheme, she's using new money to pay, pay others back. And that went on from 2012 to 2019. Right. It went on for all those years. How did it finally unravel? It unraveled when one of the investors, they don't say if he was a he or she was a victim or not, went to the SEC and complained about it. The SEC launched an investigation and then and then um, then the FBI did as well, U.S. Attorney's Office as well. So it, it, and we don't know who this so-called investor is that that was the tipster, but that's that's how it got started. Her chief financial officer for her company uh, pled guilty to the conspiracy yesterday. But there's a big question mark on whether um, there's others complicit, namely Chicago Title. Chicago Title is a well-known t- <clears throat> title insurance company that um, she used for holding all these funds in escrow accounts. Um, we do know from some of the filings and lawsuits against Chicago Title that um, there were escrow officers who these investors believe were in on the scam. Um, we don't know if um, we believe that they're, those individual escrow officers are under investigation. They no longer work for Chicago Title, but the title company, their attorney yesterday says, we don't believe we are a target of this investigation. So 
this is an ongoing probe and we'll soon see that there were other people who helped Gina Champion Kane carry this out. And Champion Kane is working with prosecutors right now. So uh, we really don't know what jail time or if any jail time, but she's she's facing what, 15 years, right? Yeah, it's five years for each of the three charges. And, you know, as you listen to the U.S. attorney yesterday, Robert Brewer, um, give his speech during the press conference, you, you came away with the impression she's going to get some get some prison time, even though it could be reduced based on how cooperative it is. I mean, he said one of his quotes was this Ponzi scheme is finally over and she will be punished. Um, and I, I, you know, you you have to think that it means more than restitution, because I don't know that she has any money for restitution. And what about the investors? You mentioned early on some got paid uh, years ago in the early years of the scheme, but will they ever be made whole? And that that is a big question. That's why you've seen um, multiple lawsuits um, being filed against Chicago Title um, because they're they're going after deep pockets and they believe that Chicago Title is culpable. So some are hoping that they get money that way. One group of investors, about 43 of them, already settled um, with Chicago Title just recently, and they got about 65% of their losses back. Uh, but there's also all of Gina Champion Kane's assets are in receivership, multiple bank accounts, uh, real estate, and the receiver is trying to, um, she's been spending a year going through all these assets, trying to see what money can be recovered. There was a lot of debt. So there's not a lot of hope that she's going to recover a lot. Right now, the assets are at about $15 million, So you can see that that doesn't anywhere near approach. What doesn't begin to cover lost. at all. Has Champion Kane said anything to you or anything publicly about her crimes? No, from day one, I've, you know, I've tried to talk to her or her attorney with no no success. Yesterday, she wouldn't, she wouldn't comment. When she was in the hearing for SEC uh, case, she, she took the fifth. So she's never said a word until this plea agreement where, you know, the wording in that plea agreement, she and her attorneys had to agree to. And one of the really interesting things in that plea agreement is the, the lengths to which she went to um, conceal what she had done when she learned there were dual investigations going on. Right. Now, this case comes on the heels of a kickback scam involving the rabbi from Chabad of Poway, who was wounded in a 2019 attack there in which a gunman killed a congregant and wounded others during a service that also follows by decades the noted Ponzi scheme by financier J. David Dominelli, for listeners who've been around San Diego a while. But this one dwarfs those other scams, right? Right. So the the, the one involving the rabbi that you referred to is about... 18 million. Um, there have been various estimates of that, how much has been lost um, in the um, J. David case, but it's about 100 million. And so I'm thinking with even with inflation that it's still, um, this still is the, the biggest. The big daddy of them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is there so, something um, in the water here? Is San Diego ripe for this sort of thing? Yeah, I know you, you, would, you would think so. And, and there's an interesting quote that I just came across that at the time the J. David Dominelli scheme came to light, the U.S. attorney at the time said, we may never use the term Ponzi scheme again. We just may hear people ask, is this another J. David scheme? And, and early on when this story broke, people were saying, wow, is this as big as the J. David scheme. Yeah. And it was, it was. I mean, it was much bigger. Same scam by any name. Well, thanks very much, Lori. It's quite a story. Thank you. That was KPBS host Mark Sauer interviewing reporter Lori Weisberg of the San Diego Union-Tribune.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Academic freedom is at the heart of America's higher education system, but a proposal under debate at San Diego State University is raising questions about limits to freedom of speech. The university's Academic Policy and Planning Committee is suggesting a new policy that could strip retired professors of their emeritus status for conduct that harmed SDSU's reputation. In the interests of disclosure, I note here that KPBS is a service of San Diego State University. To explore the proposed policy, we are joined by Gary Robbins, who is the science and technology reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, and he's written about this new proposal. Gary, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So tell us about the proposal, which would tie emeritus status to the behavior of retired professors. How did you learn about it, and what would the policy do? This this came as a tip from a faculty member. Um, What the university is thinking about doing is having a rule by which they could uh, revoke someone's emeritus status if they did anything to harm the university's reputation, either before they got that status or after. It was kind of an unusual thing because the message that came across was only about a paragraph long and it didn't define what harm the university's reputation actually means, nor did it um, lay out what the impetus for this was. Um, The university is more than 100 years old. Um, and you know, you would have thought perhaps it might have this kind of thing. So I asked the university about it, and they said they were trying to close a gap, uh, that they had never put in some type of rule by which they could revoke uh, emeritus status um, if someone, say, committed a, cr- a criminal act or violated university uh, 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 regulations. And this is coming up at a time where the university has kind of been tortured by some of its own faculty publicly. Um, there's a um, uh, emeritus faculty member named Stuart uh, Hurlbert, who has been a real critic of the university on a lot of different levels. Um, and he's gotten into it a lot with one of the um, biology graduate student associations. That association has called him a racist for some of the things that he's posted online and insensitive. Clarify for us, what is the significance of emeritus status? What does it mean and what kind of benefits are at stake here for SDSU employees? Well, it's kind of a perk. Um, So if you're a retired emeritus professor, you uh, would, uh, in most cases, have access to an office. You would be able to use a library. You would be able to use the um, uh, computer system, for example. You would be able to continue with research. Um, So many aspects of your life would remain the same, and a lot of um, retired professors want that. You were mentioning that possibly one of the targets might be Stuart Hurlburt. Um, But, I mean, is he really the trigger for this, do you think, at this time? Well, I don't know, and that's what made this story kind of frustrating. When I found out about it, I I reached out to the committee. There's a small committee uh, that came up with uh, this idea, and I, you know, I tried to get hold of the chairman, D.J. Hopkins, to say, "Tell me more about this. Where did this come from? What was the spark that led you guys to do this? What were the deliberations like? And how come you didn't explain what um, harm the university's reputation means?" He didn't respond to me, but he passed it on to the administration uh, for comment. And the, what they said was, "Well, we're closing a loophole." And then they emphasized, "Hey, this is the faculty doing uh, this. This is not us." So it's unclear really where this proposal is even coming from. Uh, Where would it go to be furthered? So um, this week it was supposed to go to another committee that's larger. Um, The the administration said that 
it can go through these various committees and possibly end up before the full university senate for a vote, perhaps in the fall. Um, I don't know if it's going to remain a proposal or, or not. I was hearing some chatter yesterday that it might be uh, pulled because of the controversy is uh, engendered, but I don't know that for sure. So now, would this change the rules for somebody who was retired, who had emeritus status, so they would have a different protection, freedom, free speech protections from someone who was actively uh, still teaching at the university? So what, what they're really fundamentally saying is that if you're an emeritus faculty member, you have to behave yourself. Now, the same thing applies uh, to uh, regular faculty. They said they never have written a rule to specifically point to them and make sure that these things apply to them as well. You've talked to other professors apart from um, Stuart Holbert about this. What are their concerns? They don't like it at all. They think it's um, in infringement on free speech. They feel like it's a, a method the university could use to intimidate them, to get them not to talk about controversial subjects. There's also some feeling on campus that, that this is an extension of cancel culture. If um, you could give the university the right to essentially cancel someone out that they don't like, you know, if that person is saying things that are making the university feel uncomfortable, then you essentially cancel it out and saying, well, this person doesn't follow the rules. They've embarrassed the university. The faculty is concerned that they may also try to do it for illegitimate reasons to muzzle free speech and academic freedom. Do you know if this kind of policy allowing revocation of emeritus status is in place anywhere else in California universities? But we were trying to find out uh, that uh, over the past day or so, in one of the notes we saw, it said that um, there was a similar rule in place in some other California State University campuses, but it didn't say which ones. This has been uh, an ongoing problem here where we ask the university questions and they don't get back to us in a timely way or really in a candid way. It's happening on a lot of issues with San Diego State. So there's been some confusion because the university isn't really talking very clearly about it. Well, SCSU did send KPBS a statement about the purpose of the proposed rule, and it says, uh, in part, the drafted preliminary policy language is not in response to any one individual, but rather in response to a lapse in existing policy, like you mentioned before. And it continues, currently, there is no way to revoke emeritus status should an emeritus faculty, staff, or administrator violate university policy or commit a criminal act. What do the critics of this policy say to, to that explanation? What the faculty say is, well, perhaps you do need a rule, but we're worried that you're actually doing it for another reason, that you have an ulterior motive, that you really want to have some type of tool that can pressure critics and keep them quieter if they want emeritus status or if they want to keep emeritus status. So what happens next to this proposal? It's unclear. Um, it looks like it's gone through the Senate Executive Committee, but we still haven't heard back on that. So the way the university wrote their message, it sounded like, well, this could be revised and it could literally end up before the university Senate this fall, which is, you know, it's not far away. So perhaps in two or three months, we're going to see this come before the university Senate, which where it will become more public. Well, Gary, thank you for your reporting on this issue. You're welcome. We've been speaking with Gary Robbins, who is the science and technology reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. 
That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.